Good morning. My name's Lachlan, one of the pastors here in Leviticus, hey? How are you feeling after that reading? Uh, maybe you're a butcher and you're like, yeah, this is pretty good. Uh, maybe you're just hungry for lunch now, you like a bit of steak, some lamb chops, this is sounding all right. Uh, look, Leviticus is a different book of the Bible. Uh, it, it's from an age, it takes us back three and a half thousand years. That's what we're reading, back 1500 years BC. So it's taking us to a different time, a different culture, seems so far removed from us. And the style of literature that it is, is not a style that we generally like to sit down and read. It's a bit like reading an instruction manual for a new appliance. There's not many of us that sit down and go, yes, an instruction manual, I get to, to read that. But if the instruction manual is for a new medical device, and that medical device is going to save your life, then you might just sit down and read the instruction manual. You might be interested in how this works. How is this device going to save me? And that's the nature of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is going to teach us how we can live. More specifically, how we can find home. There's a phrase up on screen, I wonder if you're familiar with it. Life is a journey, not a destination. I was taught that idea at high school. We had a whole unit on journey, trying to teach us to, to live in the present moment. You know, Don't worry too much about where you're going, just enjoy the road, enjoy the process, enjoy the transformation. The, the destination doesn't really matter. Now, I think what drives that kind of outlook on life is a sense of pessimism that if we set ourselves a destination and we don't make it there, we'll just get disappointed. And so we tell ourselves, no, no, it's just about the journey. I'm not going anywhere, I'm, I'm just going to try to safeguard ourselves against that sense of disappointment. We call the road home to guard ourselves from the pain of never being welcomed home. The problem is that philosophy, that way of life, leaves us with a sense of restlessness. If you look at society at the moment, we're pursuing identity after identity, experience after experience, career to career, hobby to hobby, We've got quarter-life crisis, then midlife crisis. We're always searching, but we don't know what we're searching for. We might find peace and satisfaction for a time, a few years perhaps, and then we're restless again. Got to move, got to go, got to find something new. It's all well and good to try to find some joy in the journey, but the destination matters, yeah? Uh, let me put it this way. We'll play a classic, would you rather? Would you rather right now be teleported straight to Hawaii or whatever holiday destination of choice? Would you rather be teleported straight there or just be on a plane endlessly, not knowing if you're ever going to land? Uh, who would rather Hawaii? Show of hands. Who would rather the endless plane ride? All right, a couple of you that would prefer that. Uh, look, Candy and I are going on holidays in a couple of weeks. We're heading out to the Coromandel. I would much rather that just be straight there than be stuck in Auckland traffic. We don't sit in Auckland traffic going, yes, this is so good. I love the journey. We want to be there. That The destination matters. We know that the journey isn't the goal. The problem for our society is that we have no goal anymore. We've got no destination. And so we have to trick ourselves into believing that the journey is itself good. But the Bible teaches us something far better, far more satisfying. The Bible teaches us that we have a home, that we have a destination where we will find rest, 
And the book of Leviticus starts to teach us how we can get there. So if this morning as you come into church, you're feeling that sense of restlessness in your heart, you're not sure where you're headed, you don't know how to get there, maybe you don't even know who you are, then Leviticus is for you. Here's the summary answer that we'll see. There's an outline in your outlines that you can take some notes in. That The summary answer that you'll find there, where is home? Where, where will we find rest? Well, our home, our destination, is life in God's presence. Our home is life in God's presence. And that's what we learn on the first few pages of the Bible. See, before we get to Leviticus, we've got to set the context, figure out what's happened in the story so far. On the first few pages of the Bible we find that we humans were made by God and put in a beautiful garden. It was called Eden. It was full of food, no water shortages there. And we were made to enjoy a relationship with God in this garden. God is spoken of as walking in that garden of Eden in the cool of the day, speaking directly with humanity. Life with God in his house, that was the goal of creation. But if you've been with us through our last series, you'll know the story. We, humanity, we rebelled against God, and so we were kicked out of that garden. Have a look at the way it's described in Genesis 3, verse 23. Conflict there if you like, but it will be up on the screen for you. Genesis 3, verse 23. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Notice a couple of things in there. Part of our punishment for rebelling against God is that we're sent away. And we still use that kind of punishment today, don't we? You might get banished, banished to your bedroom, away from all the fun and joy of the living room. We get sent away from the things that give us joy as part of our punishment. Not only do we get sent away from the Garden of Eden, but the way back to that garden is now guarded. Right? There's an angel there, that's the cherubim. He's not just an angel, he's got a flaming, whirling sword. What that means is that humanity can't just walk back into God's presence. God's there in the Garden of Eden, that's where we had good life with him. We've been kicked out of there, we can't just waltz straight back in. The path is guarded. There's fire in the way. I want you to notice the direction in that passage. It'll become significant. Humans were sent east east of Eden. So we were made for life in God's presence, but because of our rebellion, because of our sin, we were kicked out of God's presence and the life and joy that flows from God's presence. In the very next chapter, Genesis 4, we find the first murder in human history. Cain murders his brother Abel. And as punishment, Cain is sent still further east. Have a look at Genesis 4, verse 16. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Further east, away from God's presence. Cain reflects on his punishment. He says that it will make him a restless wanderer on the earth. That's that feeling I was describing earlier, yeah? Restlessness, just endlessly wandering. That's characteristic of life east of Eden, away from the presence of the Lord. As Genesis goes on, God approaches a man named Abraham and promises that he will bless Abraham's offspring. He does bless them, they multiply very numerous. A few generations later, lots of Abraham's descendants are now slaves in Egypt. 
And I'm sure you know the story. Enough movies have been made about it, even a Disney one. Through a man named Moses, God rescues Abraham's descendants out of that slavery in Egypt. Ten plagues, the Pharaoh gets smashed in the Red Sea, and a new nation is born, the nation of Israel. When that happens, freedom from slavery is only the start of the story. Sure, they're saved from slavery, but what now? What does the future hold for this nation, Israel? Have a listen to the way Moses answers that question in Exodus 15. Moses, singing to God, says, With your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your possession. Lord, you have prepared the place for your dwelling. Lord, your hands have established the sanctuary. So humanity has been cast out from God's presence in Genesis. But now, through Moses, God is going to lead this nation, Israel, back to his dwelling. It's not that they're geographically going back to this Garden of Eden, but they are going back to life in God's presence. What they're excluded from is now being offered to them again. And Moses is excited about that. He's singing about it. That's how joyful he is. God's presence is what we were made for. That's where our life and joy and rest and home is found. And so, in Exodus 25, God gives Moses instructions to build a tent, a sanctuary. And that tent is going to function as God's house, God's dwelling. Inside your outline, there was an insert, and it's got a diagram on there of the tabernacle of Moses. You might want to have a look at that. That's the tent that God instructed Moses to build. And can you see in there, there's like a little square that's called the most holy place. It's got the Ark of the Covenant in there? Well, that was where God said he would dwell, in that little square, the most holy place. Now, when I say that, when God says that, he doesn't mean that suddenly he's limited physically just to that little patch of earth. No, no, God fills the heavens and the earth. The universe can't contain God, but he did dwell in that particular space in a particular way. The ark was kind of his throne from which life and blessing would flow for Israel. So God has given Moses these instructions, build me a house, I'm going I'm to dwell there, you can have life in my presence. Now notice between the holy place and the most holy place, uh, there was actually a curtain, and embroidered onto that curtain were cherubim, just like the cherubim that were there in Genesis 3, guarding the path back into Eden. And you notice the directions on the diagram of the tabernacle there? Which direction do you enter in to head towards that most holy place of God's presence? As you move from the east and you move towards the west. That's not accidental. I told you the east direction would be significant. God, God is teaching Israel in this tabernacle that the impact of human sin, having been cast out from God from his presence east of Eden, that impact can start to be undone. Through this tabernacle, humanity can, can start to move back towards God. The gap can be closed. And so we get to the end of Exodus, and, and this tabernacle is built, and God turns up. Exodus 40, verse 34, The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That is a huge moment in history. God's presence coming amongst this people of Israel. But the next verse tells us that there's still a problem. Verse 35, Moses unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it 
and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Do you see the problem there? Yes, God is now dwelling among Israel, but they can't approach him. The hope of life in God's presence, it's so tantalizingly close now, you can almost touch it, but you can't just wander into this tabernacle. You can't just go to that curtain and kind of throw it open and say, oh, hey God, how you doing? Nadab and Abihu, they tried that in Leviticus 10, the end of that chapter that we read earlier. Do you see what happened to them? They tried to turn up into God's presence and they died. The flame came out and consumed them on the spot. We, as sinful humanity, cannot simply approach God. I think this is one of the biggest struggles of contemporary Christianity. We've developed a tendency to domesticate God. Our systems of society have become so flat, so egalitarian, we're not used to any authority anymore, we're not used to fearing anybody, and we project that onto God. We think of God as, well, he's like us, a, a bit bigger, a bit better. We make God safe. But as we read Leviticus, that view of God will not stand. In Leviticus, we meet God in his holiness, in his purity of light and life and glory and majesty, represented by the heat and the light of fire. It reminds me of that great scene in Narnia. Hopefully many of you have read the books when Susan finds out that Aslan is not a man, but a lion. She gets nervous and she asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan, this lion, is safe. Mr. Beaver's response might be something you need to hear this morning about God. Safe, Mr. Beaver replied. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. That's our God. It's not safe. God is a holy God. And we sinners with the stain of sin and death on us, we, we can't just walk into his presence or we will die. But the holy God is a good God. And so in Leviticus, he teaches Israel how they can approach him safely. He doesn't want this distance to continue. He wants us living life in his presence. And so he provides the way that that can happen. In Leviticus 9, verse 23, keep that chapter open there. Have a look at that verse. Leviticus 9, verse 23. Moses and Aaron entered the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. What they couldn't do in Exodus 40, now in Leviticus 9, they can do. Moses and Aaron can walk into this tabernacle on behalf of Israel And they can return with God's blessing for the whole community. That's the movement of Leviticus. From distance away from God to being able to live life in God's presence. That's why this book was so central for the life of Israel. If you were a Jewish kid growing up in this time or much later on, like up until say the last 50 years, the first book of the Bible that you would study as a kid was the book of Leviticus. That's how central this was for Jewish life. Because in Leviticus, God provides the way for sinful humans to approach him, to live in his presence, with his face of blessing and favour shining upon them. I wonder if you hear that this morning, is that something that excites you? Is this idea of life in God's presence, life in God's house, is that something that you want, that you long for? We ought to long for that. We ought to be able to say with the psalmist, here's a couple of psalms for you. 
The psalmist cries, Lord, I love the house where you dwell, the place where your glory resides. Again, I've asked one thing from the Lord. It's what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. Is that the one thing you would ask from God? Or again, Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord of armies. I long and yearn for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. Even a sparrow finds a home, and a swallow a nest for herself where she places her young. Near your altars, Lord of armies, my King and my God. How happy are those who reside in your house, who praise you continually. Israel sings with this excitement because they recognize that life in God's presence is life to the full. Life in God's presence is a fullness of joy and safety and security and beauty and goodness. God is life. So to be near Him is to be more fully alive. And to be far from Him is to be closer to death. You know how there are some people that you just always want to be around? Maybe it's the person that's the life of the party. And whenever you see them, you just crack a smile. You're like, oh, I know I'm going to have a laugh. I just want to be with this person. Fill me with joy. Maybe it's the wise teacher. And when you're with them, you just feel like you've got so much to learn from them. You just want to sit and and listen and soak up all of their wisdom. Maybe it's the strong protector. When you're with them, you, you feel like you can finally relax. You can let your guard down and just be yourself. Have you got someone in mind like that? You just always want to be around them? Well, that's the kind of spot God should have in your heart. God is life and joy and wisdom and strength. And the more that you know him, the more you want to be with him. With God, we are, we are finally home. We're finally at rest. As the great Augustine said, God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Life in God's presence, that, that's our destination, that's our home. So how do we get there without dying? How do we get there without dying like Nadab and Abihu? How do we approach holiness? Well, the answer that God provides in Leviticus is to follow the way of sacrifice. The way of sacrifice. Again, on your insert, you'll see the structure of the book of Leviticus. Chapters 1 to 7 detail five different kinds of sacrifices. It goes through it first from the perspective of the one bringing the sacrifice, then from the perspective of the priest as the one who is dealing with the sacrifice. Then in chapters 8 to 10, we read about the priests being inducted into their role. They get kind of sworn in and ordained so that they can help Israel with those sacrifices. And chapter 9 that we read, that hopefully you've still got open there, walks us through the first day when the priest made these five kinds of sacrifices for Israel. So we're going to walk through it, see what these sacrifices were, see what they achieved, see how this way could enable us to approach God. Now listen out for the different kinds of sacrifices as I read from Leviticus 9, verse 2 to 4. Moses said to Aaron, Take a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and present them before the Lord. 
and tell the Israelites, take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, male yearlings without blemish for a burnt offering, an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. See all the different sacrifices in there? You've got a sin offering, a burnt offering, a fellowship offering, and a grain offering. Now, good math, that's only four. I said there were five. The, the fifth one is this kind of offering called a guilt offering. That kind of sits in the same spot as the sin offering. You do pretty much the same thing to them. All the details of the sacrifices are in that insert so that we don't have to go through all the, the small details this morning. You can read that and look at it. The sin and the guilt offering, pretty much the same, just for different kinds of sin. So the sin offering for the times that you inadvertently broke one of God's laws, you did it unintentionally. The guilt offering was more for a time that you might have willfully, intentionally broken God's law, and it's, it's the kind of sin that leads to a debt. So the kind that was in the kids' talk, that, that would be a guilt offering, where you've, you know, one of the examples that's given is you wander along and you see something lost in the street. If you pick that up and, and lie about it and you get caught out, then you've got to pay it back. That, that would require a guilt offering. So sin and guilt offering kind of go together. But with these five kinds of offerings, what, what I want you to try to do, I thought about getting some pictures of slain animals on the screen, but I held back, refrained from that one. Try to engage your imagination, though. Try to think through what it would have been like to be there on this day in Leviticus 9 as we walk through these different sacrifices. What would this process teach you about your relationship with God? So picture it. You're standing there with your nation. There's seven animals that have been brought to the front with Aaron there, as well as some grain that's mixed with oil and frankincense. And then the action starts in verse 8. Aaron approached the altar and slaughtered the calf as a sin offering for himself. So picture Aaron there. He lays his hands on the head of this calf, gets out the big knife, slits its throat. Blood's flowing out, and you know, he catches the blood, and that starts getting kind of splattered everywhere. That's the sin offering. The, the blood that's caught, it gets smeared on the, the corners of the altar, gets poured around the base, and then Aaron takes his knife and he splits the calf down the middle to pull out all the guts. He does some butchery, all the innards get pulled out, the, the fat, the kidneys, the liver. All of that gets put on a fire on top of this altar where it gets burned up. You can hear it, you can smell it, the fat's melting and dripping and, and burning up. The carcass of the calf, so most of it, that actually gets taken outside. And, and taken outside as waste, burnt outside the camp. That's what happens with sin offerings. What do you think that would teach you about your sin? That process is designed to show that what we deserve for sin is death. In this particular instance, the, the priest is the one doing the slaughtering. But if you were bringing one for your own sin, you'd be the one with the knife, putting your hands on the animal's head and slaughtering it, gutting it. You're involved in that process to go, this animal is in place of me. That's why it has to be an unblemished animal, a perfect whole animal, because that's what we were meant to be like. That's what we failed to be like. We are blemished, but we can offer an unblemished animal in our place, life for life. And the result of that, Leviticus teaches Israel, is that you can be forgiven. If you bring this sin offering for an unintentional sin, then you can be forgiven for that unintentional sin. 
Willful sin, that, that'll get dealt with in Leviticus 16. Don't worry, you can get forgiven for willful sins as well. But this particular sin offering for the unintentional sin, which is challenging, isn't it? Because sometimes we only think of willful sin. We go, I thought my intention was what mattered. That, that only if I intend to hurt someone or intend to rebel against God, that that's what matters. But no, Leviticus is teaching all, all times that you break God's law, whether you meant it or not, whether you knew it or not, that has to get dealt with. And through these sin offerings, it can be dealt with. You can be forgiven for the sin that you don't even know you've committed. And I think this is where we tend to think that sacrifices end. I mean, what more could there be? Sin is dealt with. I'm forgiven. What else is there to do? Well, Leviticus wants to teach us that forgiveness of sin is not the end. That's not the goal. It's just the means to the end. There's still three more sacrifices to go. The next one there in verse 12. So the calf is dealt with, now Aaron brings out a ram. He again lays his hands on the head of the ram, slits its throat, blood pours out, he splatters the blood on the altar. But this time for the burnt offering, Aaron butchers the whole ram. So rather than taking the carcass outside, the whole ram gets cut into pieces, the innards get washed off to make sure there's no dung left on them, and then piece by piece the ram is put on top of this altar, the head goes on top, and the whole animal gets burnt up. That's the burnt offering. Although calling it the burnt offering is a bit of a misnomer. It, it's not actually a translation of the Hebrew here. Uh, it's just describing what happens to the animal. The, the actual Hebrew word that's used here, it doesn't sound as good. I think that might be why we don't go with it. Uh, but it's an ascension offering. It uses the verb to ascend, to go up. Uh, so this burnt offering is an ascension offering, meaning that in this offering we are ascending, going up into God's presence. As the whole animal gets turned into smoke and the smoke rises up to the heavens, that represents us who have laid our hands on the head of this animal, vicariously kind of transferring our identity to that animal. We go up into God's presence. In many ways, this is the main offering. The, the altar is named after it. It's the altar of the burnt offering or the altar of the ascension offering. You lean your hands on the head of the animal. You say, I'm being represented by this animal. And the animal then moves into God's presence. Do you see the procession between the couple of sacrifices so far in the sin offering? Our sin is dealt with, forgiven. Now we no longer carry sin with us. Now we can enter into God's presence. And so the burnt offering comes... And we, in a substituted way through the animal, ascend into the presence of God. That's the first two types of offering, sin and guilt offering or the burnt offering. In Leviticus 9, Aaron first presents these offerings for himself as Israel's priest. The priests, kind of like middlemen between Israel and God. Uh, before Aaron could do that, though, his own sin had to be dealt with. He wasn't perfect, he was a sinner too. He had to deal with his own sin before he could then act on behalf of the nation. From verse 15, though, once he's offered his own sin offering and burnt offering, then he offers the nation's sin offering and burnt offering. Then in verse 17, we get the next kind of offering, the grain offering. Now, the grain offering comes alongside the burnt offering. And again, to call it a grain offering is more like describing it than translating it. The translation will be to call this a tribute offering or a gift offering. Uh, you know when you go to visit someone, generally we try to be nice and we bring a gift, a box of chockies, a bottle of wine, something like that. Uh, that's what this grain is, as we come into God's presence. Uh, God doesn't want the chocolates, he doesn't want the wine, he 
wants some grain. That's what he's instructed Israel to bring. When you go to visit a king, you you bring a tribute. We don't come into God's presence empty-handed. In Leviticus, we come with a loaf of bread. So we've got the sin offering, and then with the ascension offering going up, bringing our tribute into God's presence. And all of that builds up to the final offering, called the fellowship sacrifice. So verse 18, finally Aaron slaughtered the ox and the ram as the people's fellowship sacrifice. Now, the unique feature of the fellowship sacrifice, and you'll see this in one of the columns on that insert, when you look at who got to eat from these different sacrifices, the fellowship sacrifice was the only one that you get to eat some of. From the sin offering, the meat either gets tossed outside or the priests get to eat a bit of it, or the burnt offering, no one gets to eat. That gets totally burned up. But the fellowship offering, once you've brought that to God and slaughtered it and dealt with it, you get to sit down with the priest and have a meal. It doesn't just represent you as humans eating together. As you eat the fellowship sacrifice, you're sharing a meal with God. You've come into God's house, you've offered him the whole animal, and God said, hey, stick around. Let's have a barbecue together. This is the climax of the sacrificial system. This shared meal, a meal of peace, where you who came in as a sinner now get to sit at God's table and eat with him. At times you do that as an individual, at times you do that as a whole nation, sharing a meal with God. See, the sin offering is not the end of the sacrificial system, it's the means to this great end of fellowship with God. By the way of sacrifice, Israel could enjoy life in God's presence, living under his blessing with his face of blessing and favour shining upon them. Can you imagine growing up under this system? Each day you look over at the tabernacle and there's smoke rising from the burnt offerings that are going up day and night. And what comfort that would bring to know that there's this constant sacrifice rising to God on your behalf. Imagine that moment where you find out that you have unintentionally sinned and you take your unblemished animal off to the tabernacle to slaughter it. Would you take sin lightly? If you had that constant reminder that your sin earns death? Oh, what a highlight it would be to get to the end of the sacrificial process and sit down to share that meal with God, have his blessing spoken over you. Not because you've figured out some clever way to manipulate God, but because you've faithfully followed the path that he gave so that you could enter into his blessing. It's a wonderful system. Sadly, Israel didn't learn all these lessons. Some did, some were faithful, but for many, the sacrifices became hollow. They became token, an excuse for a party. They're like, oh, a meal? Yeah, we can have a meal. Let's throw a party here. We'll just eat as much as we can. Let's have sex together. Let's just kind of use our power imbalance and oppress people. They started to think that they could sin as much as they like because they could always just come back and offer these sacrifices, right? God would be happy then. And the story of Israel, as the Old Testament goes on, it's full of God rebuking and disciplining Israel for offering empty sacrifices, One of the most vivid prophetic passages that comes to mind is from Amos. Have a listen to this and imagine hearing it. God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. 
Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I'll have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. So the way of sacrifice was not a permission slip to go and live however you please. It was an invitation to life in the presence of the holy God. It was an invitation to come and enjoy God and then go and live like him. And so the whole second half of Leviticus, once we've made this ascent into God's presence, the second half is all about how we can live a holy life. As we've met with the holy God, then we go and we live holy lives. As you hear that for Israel this morning, though, I wonder if perhaps you've been treating the Christian life like sinful Israel treated the sacrifices. Maybe you turn up to church on a Sunday and you pray a bit, you sing the songs, you, you confess a bit, but your heart's not really in it. You're already planning the sin that you're going to go commit this week, maybe even this afternoon. You've got to remember that the sin offering is not the end. It was just the start, the start of this movement towards life in God's presence. Wouldn't it be horrible to hear God say to us, like he said to Israel, I hate, I despise your church services. I can't stand the stench of your conferences. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the music of your guitars. That's what we'll hear if our Christianity becomes empty ritual. If we just come to church to get the permission slip, all right, now I can go and sin as much as I like this week. No, that's not the way we relate to God. Now that we've learnt the way of sacrifice from Leviticus, uh, is it time to change the way we do church? Um, I'll go grab some goats. I've got a knife over here as well. We'll bring that out. Does someone want to come and catch the blood for us up here? No, that's not what we're going to do. We're not living under this same law now. Things have changed. We, We don't need to get bloody this morning because if you've come to Jesus, then you are already bloody, washed with the blood of Jesus. This whole book of Leviticus, it's like a shadow cast back into history from the man Jesus Christ. The whole sacrificial system was just an object lesson preparing Israel, preparing us for the arrival of Jesus. I like maths, I like teaching maths. And when you're teaching little kids how to do maths, they struggle to get the idea of kind of abstract numbers that exist in somewhere. And so you use objects to teach them about the numbers, don't you? get some little blocks or some grapes or some little paddle pop sticks and you go, well, there's two of those and two of those. If we add them together, we get four. Now, now the blocks, the grapes, they're not the numbers, are they? They're just symbols. They're representing this abstract concept that's really hard to get. That's the same thing as the sacrifices. They're just like those blocks. They're not the reality. They're just pointing us to the reality that is fulfilled in Jesus. They're a vivid illustration building up this picture so that when Jesus comes, we understand him. And so now, living in this age, we approach God by the way of Jesus. Jesus is, for us, our sin offering and guilt offering. Where we deserve death, Jesus has shed his blood. He's been slaughtered in our place so that our sin could be forgiven. 
Hear that clearly this morning as you come in here with all the sin that you don't even know about. By the blood of Jesus, you can be forgiven. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus is for us our burnt offering. And no, you didn't miss the part of the gospel where Jesus' body gets burnt and turned into smoke. It's not that. But just like the smoke would ascend into the heavens, so Jesus, having died and risen to new life, ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's where he's sitting right now today, interceding for us day after day. We have in Jesus that presence with God that the burnt offering once symbolised. And Jesus is our tribute offering as well. At the right hand of the Father, Jesus presents his perfect obedience as tribute. And Jesus is our fellowship offering. By faith, we eat the flesh of Jesus and participate in his sacrificial death. By faith, every time we share in the Lord's Supper together, we come to God's table. That's why we call it the Lord's Supper. Because by faith, we we turn up at God's home. And he puts on dinner for us as he gives us Jesus. Jesus is our true food. He is the bread that nourishes us, the life that we live by. And we share by faith in the body and blood of Christ, becoming united with him in his death and resurrection as we eat that bread and drink that juice. Sharing all the benefits that he has won by his obedient life. Man, the Lord's Supper is a wonderful symbol, isn't it? In Jesus, we have peace with God. Fellowship with God. And in Jesus, we look forward to the day when we're going to be raised to new life and physically in the presence of God, enjoying face-to-face fellowship with the holy God around a banquet table. Jesus is the reality of which Leviticus is just the shadow. The blood of bulls and goats didn't actually take away sin, but it pointed forward to the blood of the eternal Son of God. That is a precious price. That is a substitute valuable enough to purchase forgiveness for anyone who would come to Jesus in faith. In case you think I'm just making up all these connections, have a listen to the way it's put in Hebrews 13, starting at verse 10. We have an altar from which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people uh, by his own blood. Do you see the connection being drawn here? Jesus is the fulfillment of the altar. He is the fulfillment of the sacrifice meal. He is the fulfillment of the sin offering. All those things were shadows pointing forward. By Jesus' blood, we sinners can be sanctified, which just means made holy, coming into the presence of the Holy to be made holy by him. Jesus is this fulfillment. And so that leads us in verse 15 to this response. Therefore, through Jesus, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. To come into God's presence through Jesus. That's not the end of sacrifices. What are our sacrifices now as Christians? Not animals, but heartfelt praise. Generosity. As we do good and share with those around us. When you give to others who are in need, you're giving to God. 
when you provide for leaders who are laboring to see you grow in Christ, you're giving to God. When you sing God's praise, you're giving to God an offering. These are the things that please Him. They're not earning you a position before God. You've already entered into His presence, remember, through Jesus, by Jesus' blood. But now that you're in presence, these are the things that please Him. In fact, in Romans 12, Paul takes it next level. Our Christian sacrifices are not just individual actions, but our whole lives. Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Instead of bringing that animal to the tabernacle to slaughter it, as Christians, we now bring ourselves through Jesus and we offer ourselves to God, living sacrifices. Every moment of every day, our whole life, every thought, every word, every action, every plan we make, every dollar we spend, true worship is bringing all of that, all of our lives, and offering it to God. A couple of the old hymns express this so well. One that changed my life was singing, Take my life and let it be, ever only all for thee. Or the final verse of When I Survey. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. That's powerful, yeah? God deserves nothing less from us than our whole self. So let's come to God through Jesus this morning. If you're feeling restless, if you're wandering through this world as if the journey is all that there is, you've got no destination in sight, then come home to God this morning. That's what you were made for. And God has provided the way for that to happen. We can approach the holy God in safety if and only if we come through the blood of Jesus. Let's approach God now in prayer. Almighty God, holy God, we come to you this morning only through Jesus, knowing that to come any other way would mean death for us as sinners. We thank you for providing a way for us to come home, to come back into your life-giving presence, back into Eden. Thank you for giving your one and only Son that we can come by his blood into your presence, your blessing. We're sorry for the times that we've taken Jesus' sacrifice for granted, where we've turned it into a permission slip to indulge in sin. Please forgive us. We offer ourselves to you this week, our lips for your praise, our thoughts for your purposes, our, our money, our deeds, everything that we are. We offer it all to you. Take our will, make it yours, that we would think and speak and act as you would have us. And we give our lives as an offering to you, for you are our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.